The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Our guest today is Sally Fernandez. Sally's foray into writing fiction officially began in 2007 when the presidential election cycle was in full swing. The overwhelming political spin by the media compelled her to question the frightening possibilities the political scene could generate. As a confirmed political junkie, she took to the keyboard armed with unwinding events and discovered a new and exciting career. The Beekeeper's Secret, the latest release, is a five-star review is her sixth novel and the second in the Max Ford thriller series. It is preceded by the book we'll be talking about today in 2020, the award-winning book Climatize, which I'm excited to say is soon to be a major motion picture featuring Maxine Ford again as the female protagonist. So welcome to the show, Sally. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Jay. It's great to be on. I want to uh, start because I read uh, Climatized I think kind of hot off the press when I found out that a number of my friends were actually uh, described in the book. And uh, I'll just say at the outset, if you want to read a great murder mystery while being educated about the reality of climate change and the reality of the man-caused climate change fraud, uh, you couldn't spend a better few hours the way I really describe uh, how great a thriller it is, is that I was reading it in the back seat of a four-passenger plane that was being flown uh, by a friend of mine who's a pilot for American Airlines and his wife, both pilots, and my wife and I were in the back seat and we were flying over the Appalachian Mountains from the East Coast uh, back to Ohio. And it was very bumpy and very stormy. And to be honest, I was uh, scared to death, even though uh, the pilot was a close friend and used to flying giant jet planes. But I, uh, I just buried myself in climate ties, the, the book, the murder mystery gripping me, and uh, it allowed me to uh, get my mind off my fears of uh, flying uh, close to the forests of the uh, highest part of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, it's an amazing book, and uh, if all our listeners will uh, check out America Out Loud, where uh, Tom and I uh, wrote an, uh, an article about the book and the fact that it is basically the only uh, novel, uh, part real, part fiction, that takes the position uh, that climate change is indeed a fraud, and it's motivated by very bad people, 
And uh, Tom was able to uncover 50 novels written about climate change, all in the scary uh, alarmist mode. So this is a new brand of wonderful friction and cannot recommend it too highly to everybody listening to our show today. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, if, if it can distract you from fear of flying in a, in a storm, it's obviously a great page turner. So, Sally, what is the basic premise behind Climatized? Well, let me first thank you for the article. It was amazing. And uh, I can honestly say that I have a review that came from 30,000 feet. So uh, thank you, Jay, for that as well. The Climatized kind of goes back before I started the book. Um, I'll kind of divert a little bit. I would say that it started when my husband and I went to Antarctica in 2000. And we were there and fortunate enough to meet a professor, Ray Arvidson. At the time, he was the uh, lead investigator, I believe, of, at the Washington University in St. Louis. And he was analyzing and archiving data that was coming back from NASA's Mars Exploration rovers, the spirit, and the opportunity. And I remember we had an incredible conversation with him, and he was explaining that uh, he was in Antarctica to study the surface that mimicked uh, the Mars terrain, and they felt that Mars was kind of a natural laboratory for studying global change. So I hadn't really thought about global change or global climate change at, up until that point. Through the conversation, most of which went over my head, I must admit, he said at the end, you can't change the climate. And he believed that the role of scientists was to understand climate and learn ways to adapt. You know, he was explaining, you know, one day we might be growing corn in Greenland instead of Nebraska. So it kind of piqued my interest. So. I first started writing about global warming in my third novel uh, called The Ultimate Revenge. And that's when I decided to basically follow the money. Mm -hmm. I didn't know a lot about science, but I was really intrigued at to how we got to the point we were. Came across a lot of really interesting characters, all of whom you know, basically starting, you know, 1987 with Gro Brundtland, um, first woman prime minister of Norway, who wrote a document for the UN called The Common Future. She basically described it as kind of our global agenda for change. From there, another one of our favorite, I don't want to say monsters, but uh, Maurice Strong, a Canadian <laughs> billionaire, <laughs> who, yeah. who I know Tom, <laughs> yes, you're very aware of. Uh, he was a very mysterious guy. Couldn't get a lot on him, but he seemed to have a lot of power. And he he was the architect of Agenda 21, which basically set the stage for this whole conversation we're having today on sustainable development and green energy, uh, or the Green New Deal. From there, we ended up, uh, I followed, of course, Al Gore was involved with him when he wrote the Agenda 21 for the Earth Summit in, uh, I think it was in Brazil in 1992. And I ended up finding out that the Joyce Foundation, which is a philanthropic group in Chicago, they uh, provided a million dollars for funding to find out how to improve the quality of life for the Great Lakes area. Somehow that money got diverted to a Richard Sandor, 
who was an economist at Northwestern University. And he used that money as a grant to determine the feasibility of cap and trade market. Now we're into like 2003. Dr. Sandar, he is the founder of a company called the Chicago Climate Exchange. And carbon trading, if you're trying to save the atmosphere, then why are you selling your credit so other people can pollute? But that would be a story you guys would understand much more than me. But Sandor ended up running this and they predicted at the time, and again, this is in 2003, that it would end up being a $10 trillion company. Oh, Predicted yeah. gross. And so at the time, Al Gore, former vice president, they were passing cap and trade legislation that if it didn't go through, would kill this whole concept. So there was a lot of push there from Al Gore, but at the time he was former vice president. And so he ended up aligning himself with David Blood, who was the former Goldman Sachs executive. They founded, I mean, this is like the, the money trail. They founded the Generation Investment Management Group out of London. And then Goldman Sachs and Al Gore's company, the GIM Investment Management Company, they ended up becoming the largest investors of CCX, the climate, Chicago Climate Change Exchange. Mm -hmm. The person who was pushing it through was Barack Obama. But when cap and change started to fall apart, and that's when that whole scandal with East Anglia happened, the climate gate, where they found the emails um, from Phil Jones that indicated they had been bucking around with the climate oh, yeah. models. Sally, let me jump in just for sure. a moment, because you've mentioned a lot of people that I had direct uh, contact with. And you're describing uh, for the audience uh, a background of uh, financial management that really drove the whole thing. Uh, you're calling Maurice Strong a, uh, a monster. It's absolutely accurate. Uh, frankly, his role as a monster uh, has been taken over by uh, George uh, Soros since Strong passed away some years ago. Al Gore is a little bit different. Uh, Al Gore is a sociopath. Uh, he is a man uh, that probably can't ever tell the truth. He, he deals in lies and he also uh, deals in money. Uh, Sandor, who set up the climate exchange, I had an opportunity uh, to lecture opposite him uh, at a conference and tried to uh, point out to a very large audience of over 500 people that the uh, climate exchange, you know, was based on a, a fraud and should no, uh, go nowhere. And at least uh, it, it didn't go as far as, uh, as it might have. But I think what, uh, before you get back to continuing this story, is our listeners are, are probably, if they're listening in, I'm sure they know uh, that man uh, does not control the thermostat of the earth and that the whole purpose of promoting man-caused climate change is to uh, eliminate fossil fuels, claiming that it's carbon dioxide controls the thermostat, and really ultimately to uh, ration energy to all of society, you know, making us captives of our government. But I think few listeners realize that uh, this is a financial cabal 
uh, that began many, many years before they became aware of what was going on. So uh, go ahead now, Sally. No, exactly. And that was kind of why the premise for the the ultimate revenge was to follow the money. I'll get very quickly into what got me into climatize. But, you know, to continue that whole thing, and I can kind of wrap it up by saying they they took the company, they sold, they knew the cap and trade was going, you know, nowhere within our government. They took that money, they launched a European climate exchange and a climate future exchange all in London, which was all wrapped up so that ultimately in 2010, there was an international exchange in London that kind of was a clearinghouse for everything. And they ended up selling for $604 million. And the records show that Sandor made $90 million on it for his sale, 16% of the share, and GIM and Goldman Sachs each owned 10%. At the same time, I looked at the GIM, Al Gore's Generation uh, Investment Management Company, and I found his portfolio, and there were no green companies in his portfolio, but there were plenty of profits. He's a bit of a hypocrite. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, you know, and just today, just today on Bloomberg uh, Climate, Al Gore came out and he warned he, let me paraphrase here. He warned that the mounting threat, and he uses the word greenwash, poses a significant and increasing risk to successful transition away from fossil fuel. So I guess his new term greenwashing means climate deniers are now, I don't know, greenwashers. It's kind of this hocus pocus semantics. But we're looking at 30 years later and he is still front and center of exactly what you said, Jay, pulling this Potemkin village, uh, global warming village that's just going to, I hope, collapse from all of the good work that that you're doing um, and others. Uh, and I just want to kind of throw in where we keep following the money, because it is like 30 years later from when Gro Bruntland wrote her Common Future, that nothing has changed. Uh, 2013, Matthew Ridley was a British scientist, and he framed the global warming debate. He said, the climate change is either the most urgent crisis facing mankind, requiring almost unlimited spending, or it's a hoax dreamt up to justify socialism. Mm -hmm. So it would appear that it's more the logical conclusion that it's a hoax to justify socialism because it's exactly what's happening today. And I just want to throw in one more thing and I'll kind of move into climatize after, you know, if you have any other questions about this, but the other big explosive thing that you've seen on the news today is our energy secretary. So Portrera, an electric battery and vehicle manufacturer has just gone public. Well, they have been wined and dined with taxpayer dollars from the Biden administration since they've been in. And she just sold recently up to $5 million worth of stock holdings in Potrera. Mm-hmm. So nothing has changed. Oh, nothing no, has- I, I, you know, absolutely nothing has changed. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people recognize 
that the uh, Clinton Foundation was essentially uh, a crime foundation. They uh, sold uh, influence to the federal government. The entire Biden administration is a, uh, a criminal operation. Uh, I'm not really upset about it uh, for the following reasons. Uh, they're digging the hole deeper and deeper to the point that I very optimistically believe that the average American is uh, going to recognize they're being ripped off. Their standard of living uh, cannot be maintained if we eliminate uh, fossil fuels. And in the national poll that will be taken in November of 2022, where we uh, elect and reelect uh, approximately 530 representatives of the House of Representatives, there uh, will be a landslide uh, away from the Democratic Party that right now only holds a three or four seat majority. So uh, pretty much every day, just Sally, as you're reading in today's paper, uh, bad things are happening. Uh, I think they're, uh, they're going uh, off the boundary and most people are going to wake up and in the next uh, remaining 14 months till that election, they're going to be wounded in some way. Uh, gasoline prices will pass $4 through most of the uh, country. Electric rates will uh, go up. And in other ways, uh, the public will recognize what is, uh, is going on. Uh, Jay, you've written a lot of pieces on this and talked about it, and I know about your optimism. And I wake up every morning, and when I read this stuff, I only think it's good for the country because every mistake they make, and it's been really continuous, I can't think of one success they've had. And I, I don't say that from a political perspective. I say that from a factual. There is not one policy they put through since they took the oath of office that has been successful in helping uh, the United States. I mean, even Bill Clinton got rid of welfare. So this only shows, it continues to show what a fallacy this whole argument is. And people, I think, are waking up to it. And, and now we've got Cuba. Uh, just every single day, there's another sign that what they're doing is heading us in the wrong direction. So this may be that paradigm shift um, that will take them down and kind of right the ship for the rest of the country. When you're talking about the drivers of the climate scare, then it's important we bring up the financial side equally with the drive towards socialism. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, with the, if, you know, I think I've also heard both of you speak about, you know, if you go back and you see the argument that they made for climate change back at the Earth Summit, and how they push the sustainable development, and this is for the good of the world. They're using the exact same argument. I've heard J.U. say this, COVID. COVID fits right into that. There's nothing different from what they're trying to do with climate change that they weren't trying to do with COVID. It's another way to control and get us closer to socialism. You're, you're exactly right. Uh, COVID was a gift uh, to those wanting to drive our country to socialism, if, if not total uh, communism. Uh, basically, they wanted the public to acquiesce, uh, the masks uh, being shut in their houses, everything worked for them. But there's something going on now, uh, just as you are sharing my optimism, uh, try getting a plane ticket, try getting on a plane, try uh, going somewhere in, in your car, try getting a hotel reservation. The entire country has broken out uh, of their quarantine, broken out of their masks, and are uh, getting out into the countryside 
and uh, and traveling. And this is a wonderful thing. So while uh, too many people did acquiesce and were controlled, uh, they're, they're sensing and feeling and tasting their freedom again right now. And I think those feelings are going to carry over. The people that will be running for the House seats held by Democrats are having the their platforms written by this administration. Virtually every day, they do some failed thing that new people running for the House of Representatives can point to and say, you don't want to elect uh, this person again. Uh, they voted for and supported in every way what the uh, Biden administration uh, has done. So uh, I'm so glad that you share my optimism. Uh, Tom, you had a question. Sally, with the Green New Deal front and center in today's politics, it sounds like it's important that people read your book, Climatized. What, what do you think? Uh, I think absolutely. And you, you made the mistake of mentioning before that I was a political junkie. So we kind of got off <laughs> on the political junkie side of it. Um, but I also believe, you know, in what Francis Bacon said, that truth is hard to tell. It sometimes needs fiction to make it plausible. So I started to now decide to, to follow the science. I've been, I, so I know the money. I know the hopes. I can wrap my head around that. But how can you convince an entire country or let alone an entire continent to set aside social, political and economic needs for the greater good? And I kept asking questions, you know, how can humans uh, create enough global warming to create a catastrophe? So I kind of got my conspiratorial mind hat on and started going into things like what if? What if the catastrophic effects of global warming were proven to be untrue? And what if that Potemkin uh, global warming village I referred to uh, were to fall apart? then mm -hmm. the IPCC would no longer exist. Bloated governments would deflate. Green manufacturers would go belly up. And the fallout from exposing such a scam would have devastating implications. But equally as devastating would be if the scam continued to exist. So I kind of got into that catch 22 mm -hmm. and I moved over to saying, okay, now let's go in and look at the science. So that was kind of the gestation of how I got to climatize. Mm -hmm. I also needed a new platform for my, my heroine, Max Ford, who I believe Jay has a crush on. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so basically the, the premise of climatize from the fictional plot is that she, uh, is hired by the wife of a prominent senator who was just uh, found dead in a park. They say it's suicide. She say it's not. She says it's not. Uh, it leads her, Max, to discover that three world-renowned scientists also lost their lives days before they were test to testify in front of the late senator's investigative committee on climate change. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, there's a fourth scientist missing. So Max is now finds, discovers or decides that he's the key to unearthing the motives behind the deaths. And Max so, is Maxine, right? The Max, lady's yes. investigator. Exactly. Maxine Ford, Max Ford. You'll be hearing lots about her. Um, so she's determined. So she finds this clue and it 
takes her to Sarasota, Florida, then she ends up in a hospital and makes her way to Italy. She discovers oh, we- that a powerful organization is responsible for the killings and uncovers their motives. And so she finds she takes this cogent evidence to the president and that forces him to make the crucial decision to cover up this diabolical plot that we've been talking about or bring down a multi-trillion dollar worldwide industry. Mm-hmm. Well, as we approach the end of this first section, uh, I want you to uh, prepare yourself to tell the audience uh, how you located some of the most prominent uh, scientists in the world uh, in the area of real climate science knowledge uh, to help you ensure that you knew the science and were so capable of uh, teaching it in this wonderful uh, mystery thriller. Dennis Avery and, and the like, uh, Fred Singer, uh, we'd like to know how you uh, were able to contact them and they were able to take you seriously as a novel writer to help you understand the science. And we'll be right back after the break to discuss exactly that topic. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Are you looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator of nutritional supplements for cell health. Most vitamins haven't been upgraded since the 1930s. Healthy Cell uses an innovative technology, which is a gel pack that pro- provides a better absorbed vitamins and nutrients where they're needed the most. I just took a Healthy Cell today before I went out and exercised. And I can tell you, I am working hard for America Out Loud radio as we speak. And tonight, I am looking for good REM sleep. And I can tell you, I am tired and I wanna fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deeply and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell. I'm gonna use the Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. This is the only sleep supplement designed to support all four stages of sleep. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, and get a 20% off for your first order of any product. I use HealthyCell and I'm really glad that I've been introduced to it. So I recommend it for you. Again, go to HealthyCell.com and use the OUTLOUD code, promotional code, for a 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
AmericaOutloud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I want to rephrase my question that I asked at the end of the first section uh, of Sally Fernandez. Uh, Sally, you uh, went to and met, you know, three of the most prominent climate scientists in the world, Fred Singer, Dennis Avery, and Hal Dwarren. Uh, all very close friends of mine who sadly have passed away uh, in recent years. But what was it like uh, to contact these people as a novelist and have them take you uh, seriously in terms of making sure you really understood the science and brought it to your readers? Sadly, all of those people have passed and they in the process became very, very dear friends. I was creating a story where I wanted to pair them with different scientists. But I thought it was important to maybe pair with real scientists that could validate the science and it would give credibility to the storyline. So I, I looked at the legal, the legal challenges behind that and found that I could use their names as long as I didn't disparage them in any way. But it didn't feel right. So I finished the whole story, the whole uh, manuscript. And I had these people in there, but then I decided to search for them. I chose Dennis Avery because he was working at the, um, the Hudson Institute at the time. And a friend of mine worked for him. And so getting my manuscript to him was fairly easy, but wasn't what was a surprise is I was living in my home uh, in Florence, Italy at the time. And I received a phone call from Virginia and it was Dennis Avery. And the first words out of his mouth was that I had accomplished what no other human being in the Western world has been able to express. And then he proceeded to read out the most amazing critique of the book. Huh. And part of it starts off as in climatized Sally Fernandez has made herself a credible expert presenting plausible scenario that will descend on the planet soon. Now, I never met Fred Singer, but I quoted a lot from the book that they had written together, which was uh, Unstoppable Global Warming Every 1500 Years. And that was one of the books that I used for my research. And I kind of laughed because Maurice Strong was complaining about you know, that we would be using too much air conditioning and we would hurt the planet. And I remember Dennis saying, but that's what air conditioning is for. So it was great honor and tribute to be a friend. Uh, we collaborated for several years. In fact, he sent me some documents that he wrote that he wanted me to review. And I think, Jay, and I may, I may follow up on this, uh, I passed them on to you because it was way over my head, but it could have been with Tom, but I passed it on to someone, but I will get them to you. I mean, I think they're treasures. And it was a manuscript he was working on. 
I also was looking for someone, I created this uh, character that was at NASA. So I was looking for someone at NASA. And that was quite interesting because I was scouring everything. And I found an article, I think it was written by Gus Lubin. And he was writing about how the NASA administrator, I, I know what it was, it was in the Gus Lubin wrote it. It was in the Business Insider, and it discussed a letter that was sent to Charles Bolden, the, NS, uh, the NASA administrator at the time. And it was signed by 49 NASA astronauts and scientists. And the tenor of the, look, the letter was kind of what I was looking for. It was a challenge to the science that had yet to been settled. Mm -hmm. So I needed somebody for my character, Antonio Maieri. And I discovered that 13 down on the list was, a re was retired, but it was Hal Durant. And he currently was the active chairman of a group of Apollo space veterans who volunteered their time to answer the questions that I was setting out to seek. Then I discovered that the other members on the list, there was Tom Weissmeller. So I scoured the TRC website and I read various reports, and I found the formula that they had that I've used in my book. And I was convinced, excuse the pun, that I found the right stuff for my storyline. Yeah, so this TRC, just to define it, that's the right climate stuff, right? <laughs> yes, it's the right climate stuff research team. Yeah, and these are NASA astronauts and engineers and exactly. others. Exactly. Well, I want to, again, uh, Sally, I want to jump in here and talk about Hal Warren who became a very close friend of mine. He's not just a, a regular NASA guy. He wrote the computer program that landed Neil Armstrong on the moon. Exactly. Now, we became good enough friends that I could tease him that the program <laughs> only worked up to about the last minute when Neil looked down at the moon site <laughs> he was to land on and it was really rocky and he didn't want to land there. So in the last 45 seconds, Neil took over uh, his spaceship uh, manually <laughs> and landed in a smoother uh, place. And Tal Dwarren was a, a wonderful feel, a fellow and he, he took my, uh, my kidding very uh, good humoredly. So we're talking about a man who uh, was right at the top in our uh, space exploration right. that uh, Sally was able to talk to. And that was his pogo, was it? Was it the pogo? Yes. That he wrote? Yes. Correct. Yeah he, yeah, he was amazing. So I just fired off and said, this is what I had done. And Tom actually was the first one who unfortunately passed um, last week. I'm sorry, he's like a family friend to me. So Tom was um, the first one to respond. And I, he said, it would be wise to allow us the ability to exercise a literary veto where they or the TRSC are mentioned, TRCS are mentioned. And I remember I said to him, I'm not the least bit deterred by the request. You get it, it's yours, because I want the science to be factual and I want the storyline to be plausible. And I was so thrilled. Uh, Hal, uh, Jim Peacock, who is also one of those engineers and scientists uh, that was part of the Apollo team and now 
now the chairman of the TRCS, uh, Jim read it, uh, Hal read it, Tom read it, and Larry Gould, who's a professor at um, the University of Hartford, who's also part of the team, read it, and they all came back and never changed anything. Hmm. Wow. So, so unlike most fictional novels, this one is based on real science and real facts. Right. Can I tell you, I'd like to tell you just a really quick side story. There's a guy named Daniel Bloom, and he, he has, he's, calls it the Cli-Fi um, Cli uh, Net. He's, he's an American. He's in Taiwan. He's all over this Cli-Fi science genre. He sent me an email to say that he gave me a review on Amazon. I went to Amazon. He gave me one star. So he said that he loved the title, thought it was a great writer, but I didn't have my science right. Yeah, so just, I for, just for listeners, cli-fi is what some people call climate fiction, which is an accelerating field. We're seeing more and more in this area. So just go ahead, Sally, cli-fi, exactly. that's what it is. <laughs> well, I, I noticed that in your article and, and that's what kind of, I went back through the archives to find Dan Bloom. So yes, it's created a whole new genre. Uh, so he went in there and I went back and said, I'm sorry, but my science, my research is accurate. And so I challenged him and he said, okay, let's do an interview. So I did an interview with him and he went back to Amazon and rewrote his review and gave me five stars. Well, I want to tell a side story too, since uh, Sally accused me of having a crush on Max Ford, <laughs> which is absolutely true. Uh, you know, I, in my literary knowledge, you could count uh, the major female uh, heroines in, in fiction on the fingers of one hand. And uh, Max Ford uh, is absolutely amazing. The, uh, the picture of this woman, her intelligence, her beauty that Sally has uh, created is, is amazing. And uh, I'm looking forward uh, to future books as her, uh, as the heroine. She uh, was formerly with the CIA. She decided to start her own investigation uh, company, and, and she just is uh, really marvelous. And let's uh, hear a little bit about uh, your efforts or what's going on with uh, hopefully eventually making a, a movie of uh, Climatize with uh, Max Ford as the heroine and perhaps uh, who you might know could possibly be starring in the role? Well, we are pitching it as a trilogy called Max Ford and um, risking uh, Jay's compliment of Max. I'll tell you that I've always considered her my alter ego, my wannabe spy. Yeah, and, uh, I was thinking that maybe you could play the role. <laughs> <laughs> people have asked, and, and Joe has said, she has my mouth, uh, the sarcasm <laughs> part of it. It's been a long, uh, long road writing the script and getting the script uh, to make it cinematic enough for a major motion picture, but stay with a narrative. And I'm very fortunate to have screenwriters uh, who are doing that. They have clearly stuck to the narrative, but it is, you know, it, it's uh, a Mission Impossible, a Jason Bourne to, to that level. If this is successful, then the next 
uh, movie would be Max Ford in The Beekeeper's Secret and the third book I'm writing right now, which is The Infiltrator's Shadow. But right now the script is finished. Uh, it was a little slogging through during COVID, uh, just trying to do everything on Zoom with three writers and producers and so forth. But our team has a complete script now. Right now, they have targeted in on a few directors that they think would be really great for this. Gina Carano, interestingly, has read the script a couple of times. You may remember she was fired from Mandalorian for her tweet going against the, can the cancel culture was wiping her out. But she's seriously considering it. I saw her in Haywire and she actually plays a kind of a Mac the Max Ford role. So she's read it a couple of times. There are other uh, A-list directors and actors they're looking at, but it all kind of starts with the director at this point, because once you bring him in, they always have the preferred cast and so forth. I mean, we're looking at Mel Gibson, although I know he is doing uh, the second Passion of Christ. Uh, Stuart, uh, my producer, Stuart Pollock, worked with uh, Jodie Foster on Flight Plan. That would be another one to really consider. I mean, I have my long list, but I don't want to offend anybody that's going to hear this because the show is going to go worldwide and they don't want to shut them down from being possibly the next Max. But it's all full steam ahead. I mean, this movie will happen. I'm very happy with the fact that they've kept with the scientific narrative. Uh, it will be very fast paced. And we're trying to create Max as, you know, the next Wonder Woman, except someone that's much more uh, approachable. I want to correct a, a misconception that I'm guessing uh, your audience might have. And I'm going to a bet that uh, Tom and Sally have this misconception. Uh, the original and greatest uh, until climatized book that was uh, written uh, part truth and part fiction was Michael Crichton's State of Fear, uh, a, a brilliant piece of fiction. People know Michael Crichton for many, many movies and well, ER of course won award after award on uh, television and uh, he wrote the movies about the dinosaurs on the island and uh, all kinds. Uh, he was a medical doctor, graduated Harvard Medical School, but he always had a writing bent and he never practiced uh, medicine, went right into writing and, and did absolutely amazing stuff. Well, he wrote State of Fear a few years before he passed away. And it was the general thought uh, that as brilliant as it was, and so many of his books were made into movies, that it was not made because Hollywood uh, opposed the idea of blowing the whistle on climate alarmists. Uh, it turns out I have a friend who actually knew uh, Michael and, and knew him at the time, and that was not the case. Michael came from a very, very liberal family, and he decided not to promote it as a movie because he did not want to take the abuse uh, from his family, uh, you know, coming out in the open as a, uh, a non-liberal. And I found that to be fascinating. So really, Climatized will uh, be the first uh, movie that blows the whistle on the alarmist uh, while telling an absolutely amazing story. Mm -hmm. so, so tell me, Sally, with your working on the movie, 
and your book, have you been actually harassed at all by the climate alarmists? Because some cases, you know, we've had scientists with death threats and all sorts of things. Other than the, the Dan Bloom a while back, no one has really come after me yet, but I'm happy to have you sent them all my way. <laughs> it's only going to help. That's I right. Wanna... We'll shoot at you if you're a threat. <laughs> no, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's going to get out there. And I think, you know, I wrote this in 2014, but look where we are today. It's going to be even more profound today than it was probably back then. Uh, mm -hmm. All the players, you know, they've all shown their stripes. Uh, so I'm very excited about the timing. Climatize, you know, it's, it's still there in terms of books. I mean, last week, you know, it only lasts for a few days, but it made number one bestseller and environmental issues environmental economics and in uh, political thrillers on Amazon. I'm happy to say when it became number one bestseller in paperback, it was number one for a couple of days right before Schellenberger, who was number two. So oh, wow. That's it's, a great it, yeah, it's, it, it's very, and it's getting, you know, all of, all of the attention, everything that you've done to help with your articles, with the show, with talking about it, constantly pushing, and then as soon as we can make an announcement about the director, uh, that's probably when we'll start taking some incoming fire. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, you know, the reviews I get, I mean, they're really not negative. They're so incredibly supportive, even for people who did, didn't believe or they, 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 they were against the deniers, as we used to be called. But I guess mm -hmm. now we're called... Uh, what is it from Al Gore? Greenwashers. We're greenwashing now. Um, but I think just all of the, the positive spin that comes out of it is so helpful. And I'd like to just kind of throw this great quote that I received that I use it a lot on my books and my uh, publicity. Someone once said, never will you be forced to the edge of your seat in a mystery thriller while being steeped in scientific education of great importance to humanity. Hmm. Jay Lair, former yeah. science well, director <laughs> of the Hartlett Institute. You know, it's funny. I, I was about, I, I didn't remember the quote. And I was about to say, gee, I wish I had written that. And, and, <laughs> and it's, but it's so true. I mean, I, let me tell you, I, you, you know, most people know I'm a, a major league skydiver. I've been jumping on airplanes for 42 <laughs> years. I hold a record uh, for having not missed a month in 35 uh, years in uh, Columbus. That's a lot of winners. And yet flying over the Appalachian Mountains in a four-seater plane, bumping around, scared the heck out of me. I didn't have a parachute. I didn't want to, <laughs> if I did, I don't want to jump into a forest and climatize literally saved me. I was uh, so tied into it that I uh, forgot my uh, momentarily uh, fear of flying. But I want to, you, you brought up uh, Michael Schellenberger. He wrote an excellent book called Apocalypse Never, which I highly do recommend. I wrote a three-part uh, series on it at cfact.org. But he's an interesting fellow who was a uh, major league liberal, really, uh, uh, an environmental zealot all the way. And uh, one day uh, on a uh, trip around the world, he saw the light and he decided to write a book, more or less correcting all uh, the errors that he had made throughout the first 20 years of his uh, career. But I, I always a little shaky with him because 
Uh, he's well, he's done a brilliant job of promoting himself, and and that's a good thing. But I also sense that one of his reasons for turning changing sides uh, was a financial one, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, you know, I'm always a little uh, skeptical of his uh, uh, positions. Would you uh, now give us a little uh, background of where did the beekeeper's daughter uh, tie in uh, to your trilogy and uh, give us a little uh, heads up on what's coming in the the next new Max Ford thriller? The thread for all three Max Ford thrillers is this consortium, the one world government that's really controlling everything. And it goes back to the George Soros, goes back to the Maurice Strongs. And so Max is always up against them as she is in Climatized. So in The Beekeeper's Secret, I decided to take another small subject and I now have alternative medicine fighting the big pharma and the FDA. And again, she's getting in the way of what the consortium is trying to control for the country. And so this one, she's looking for, she finds out a beekeeper is killed, a senator is killed, and they actually have the secret to solving cancer. And it has to do with honey and pollen. And it makes, as a, what I think, a very plausible reason for what we can do from an alternative medicine. Now, I have to say um, that sadly, and the memory board on this film is unfortunately going to be too many people because we will have Dr. Hal Duran, we will have Dennis Avery, we will have Tom Weissmaller, but we will also have David Dunham, who is my publisher, who passed away literally about months after, um, actually, it was July 21st, it will be next Wednesday, passed away right after this was published. He came to the launch. He came to my husband's birthday party. That whole weekend, he never told us that his cancer was back. But the book was dedicated to him because he fought using alternative medicine. And he didn't die from that. It was malpractice, but that's another book. So anyway, it's it's uh, dedicated to David. It's about alternative medicine. It's about we should be stewards of our body. You know, we don't rent them. We own them. It's to wake people up, to question. But it brings a lot, again, follow the money and why we spend so much money on radiation and chemotherapy. It's a big business. Mm -hmm. uh, and is it necessary? Because there are other ways that people can fight cancer, like eat broccoli. I mean, it really gets to... Uh, understanding a lot of what's going on and what's good and bad about these government agencies. So it's another story where Max is up against uh, the consortium going against what they're trying to, to accomplish by controlling us. All our listeners know the world is run uh, by a search for money and power. Uh, that's what motivates just about uh, everybody. I think in the pharmaceutical business, it's more money uh, than power, but things uh, uh, go awry as a result of it. All the billionaires now that are uh, running the, uh, the world, the, the 
the Bezos and the, the, those types of billionaires, they have all the money in the world. They don't have power and they promote socialism because uh, rich people can control uh, a socialist government. They really cannot control a truly capitalist government. But since you, you're dealing in medicine, uh, I'll give our audience two uh, updates uh, in the area of medicine. Uh, one is that I've just decided and, and threw out the idea to Tom, uh, we're going to do a show a month or so from now on the use of artificial joints. It's just unbelievable uh, how many people uh, who might do better losing weight or some kind of exercise are uh, buying into artificial joints. Uh, I have one, maybe the best artificial joint that's ever been in place. My right knee uh, is artificial, but I've teased the surgeon that he may have scammed me because if I went to, in the court of law, I couldn't swear I had an artificial knee. Uh, it, it, has, it doesn't tell me that it's artificial. <laughs> it works perfectly. And I'm hoping to get that surgeon on uh, as our guest. Uh, another, uh, again, I'm assuming that uh, most of our audience are readers. And in the medical area, I cannot recommend too highly a book uh, titled Keep Sharp by a well-known brain surgeon and journalist. A lot of people know he's a journalist, Sanjay Gupta. He's worked for a number of TV stations, I think currently maybe NBC or, or CNN, but he is uh, still doing brain surgery on a regular basis. And he wrote a fabulous book, uh, How to uh, Keep Sharp in Your Later uh, Age. And of course, I love it because I'm at an advanced age. And maybe I like the book because it pretty much describes the common sense lifestyle I've lived. Uh, but those are, are two really good things. But uh, you're tackling uh, the medical area, uh, the health area. It's very, uh, very exciting. And, you know, maybe you'll get into all the fraud uh, involved in the uh, China virus that has uh, taken us over and you're dealing with cancer in the beekeeper's daughter. There are drugs that would have been very effective with regard to the China virus that uh, were impeded as best the pharmaceutical uh, companies or the government could, mm -hmm. uh, could do. Well, I've actually included that in the third book, which is The Infiltrator's Shadow. Naturally, Max had to get COVID, go through this whole process. And my first chapter starts with somebody, and I wrote the chapter probably a year ago, with someone in a Wuhan lab dropping test tubes and accidentally spreading the virus. Mm -hmm. You know, I should point out to readers that this whole storytelling approach really does work to not only educate people, but actually to sway them. And, you know, various studies have shown that in the case of climate change, it really helps boost, unfortunately, the climate change alarmist movement and, you know, their overarching objectives to take apart our society. But, you know, writing in the BBC, here's what climate activist and science writer Diego Ortiz explained. He says, this is where fiction comes in. It brings the abstract data closer to home by focusing on the faces and stories in these futures. Show readers a detailed and textured account of a climate change future, says Kim Stanley Robinson, the author, and they have an easier time imagining it. So, you know, you by going through this kind of mystery and, and the nefarious drivers, the 
financial interests and all that sort of thing in a novel, I think will open people's minds to consider it in the real world. Isn't that part of the objective? Absolutely. And it goes back to kind of my hero, Francis Bacon, who said truth is hard to tell. It sometimes needs fiction to make it plausible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet so much is going on in the climate change area. It almost sounds like fiction, but they're really doing it. You know, here in Ottawa, for example, they're spending, now you won't believe this, but it's true, $60 billion with a B over 30 years for a city of 1 million people on their climate change plan. It's, it's really incredible. Oh, it's so yeah, we need novels to ha help people think about it in a different way to what we're being fed. Exactly. I mean, I just, just aside from what you said, yesterday the European Bank said that they're going to increase uh, their contributions to address climate change. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now banks are fixing climate change. You can't make it up. It sounds like fiction. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you know, I was on a uh, radio interview just the other day, Sally, and I uh, pointed out to the audience that uh, if they had my background uh, in, in climate change, which really dates to 1975, when every major magazine like Time Magazine and Newsweek had covered stories of uh, the coming ice age, and then it came changed to global warming. Uh, if they were as aware technically as I am uh, of this being the biggest fraud in the history of mankind, it would uh, it would drive them crazy that they're they're lucky they don't know it all the way uh, I do. But it's certainly been worth uh, uh, battling and your book makes a major contribution and your forthcoming books. And we certainly hope uh, the movie will uh, will do as well. It takes uh, everybody doing their part to uh, uh, battle uh, evil. And it indeed is a battle between good and evil. Yes, exactly. So Sally Fernandez, thank you very much for being on our show today. We really look forward to your book, Climatize, the award-winning novel to soon be a major motion picture. So this is gonna be quite wonderful. So do keep us up to date. We'll certainly incorporate it into our articles when we know that the film's coming out because everyone who doesn't read the book, at least you've got to see the motion picture. <laughs> so thanks for being on our show, Sally. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Jay. So this is Tom Harris and Jay Lear with our guest, Sally Fernandez, signing out from the other side of the story. Thank you.